In this edition of the OT Podcast... Bite off more than you can chew and then chew like hell. Uh, And that's basically been my motto through life. Welcome to the OT Podcast, which takes a deep dive into the topics affecting optometrists today. Each time we'll find a real expert in their field and attempt to pull everything we can out of their brain so it may reside in yours. This is the fourth episode in the series and we're recording on the 11th of April 2023. You can listen to the other episodes with Nicola Logan... Ian Cameron and Keith Valentine on the OT website, on Apple or Spotify, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. In our fourth episode, we'll be trying to work out what makes a positive and productive place to work. But first, I'll introduce myself. Uh, My name's Kerry Smith-James. I'm the clinical multimedia editor for Optometry Today, and I'm also an IP-qualified optometrist. I work in independent practice in Lancashire. I'm Ian Beasley, head of education for the AOP, clinical editor of optometry today and also a visiting lecturer at Aston University. So Kerry we're here to talk about positive and and productive working environment. This got me thinking about my time in practice. I I, I started out in the late 1980s, stayed in the same practice for 31 years up until 2020. I was thinking about my time and was it really positive? Was it, was it negative? I don't think it was either of those, really. I think I had perhaps a, um, a memory of it being quite quite neutral, if you like. Certainly in the, in the late 1980s, there was no talk of staff well-being. There were no initiatives to kind of look after us. We, we just rocked up to, to work. We had a diary full of patients. And at the end of the month, we were given a, a small pot of gold for our trouble. And, and, and we cracked on with the next day. Now, you've also worked primarily in independent practice, I think, Kerry. So um, is your experience any different to that? Yeah, I mean, I started out in a multiple DNA. It was the late 90s. And um, I just remember um, (laughs) there was quite a lot of uh, smoke coming from the staff room that would just waft into my test room and break up people's tear films. Um, So, yeah, staff well-being. I I don't know whether we, we, we did particularly... Um, do anything in in terms of that at the time. Um, I mean, nowadays you've it's there's a there's a lot more in- initiatives. You've got sort of cycle to work schemes, and now there's fruit in the practice to try and get everyone to uh, eat their five a day. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of deliberate attempts to improve well-being. But I, I always think it's about the people around you. It's very much about the leadership and the way their attitude filters down to uh, the rest of the team. Really, I think that's the perfect place to to introduce our guest this morning so he can share his his perspective on on positive working environment so i'm really pleased to welcome peter frampton peter before before we sort of delve in and have a chat with you i'll just do a a formal intro if that's okay with you Um, so dr peter frampton was one of the first independent prescribing optometrists in the uk gaining his diploma in therapeutics in 2009 He was made a fellow of the College of Optometrists in 2011 in recognition of his commitment to clinical excellence, has a doctorate from Aston University, a stash of industry awards, and even a degree in Australian environmental studies. So Peter, welcome to the the OT podcast and happy birthday. (laughs) Thank you very much. (laughs) Yeah, 64 today. It's a bit of a blighter, but you know... You've got to go with it. <laughs> it's all I got. <laughs> now, Peter, when, when Kerry and I were, were chatting in the, in the build-up to this, this podcast, we, we've both met you, of course, and, and, and Kerry made the astute observation that your accent would suggest you've not always lived in Northumberland. 
So perhaps we can begin by you sharing with us, you know, what brought you to the other side of the world and, and why have you stayed? Yes, um, thank you. Now, I've got a couple of points to make first because I want people to keep listening. And I, and I do think that if it's all just about me, um, I'm not sure that it, it, it's got to have some import to the people who are listening. And I do actually think that my story could have, particularly for young people and particularly young optometrists. Because, you know, at a very young age, we have to make some really serious decisions about our futures. And, and I'm not sure that everyone at that age is in a position to make them. And so I decided to have a theme to this little chat. I've decided to call it success via uh, the unplanned route, because I haven't planned anything when I look back, I realise that almost anything I've done has ever been planned. It's just uh, fallen. What has led to my success, though, I believe, is my ability to see an opportunity when it arrives, seize it and run with it. I never intended to be in England. Uh, I never intended to be an optometrist, never intended to be an optometrist. And yet I do believe I'm actually quite a good one. It doesn't have to be preordained that you're a certain thing. And opportunities come. And I've had a really, really interesting time, I think. And I think it, it does help young people to think, yeah, there are routes to places and they don't always have to be planned out. So that's what I'm hoping that today will do. I mean, even my first degree, environmental studies, that even came as a bolt. It was a new degree, uh, I was in my senior year at school and this person came from that particular university said, look, there's a degree. I thought, oh gosh, that pretty much reflects how I feel about the world, so I'll do it. So the university had no, or that course anyway, had no kudos, it had no reputation. I, I can then say to myself, well, you know, I was re very much in the vanguard in the late 70s, early 80s of, of this group of people. And this university now has a hell of a reputation but it certainly didn't when I exited, but I still loved the course and it certainly does reflect how I think. 40 odd years on, it's gone full circle and suddenly my past degree is now coming up in talks I do because it's actually suddenly quite relevant. It should have been relevant 45 years ago, but it is now becoming very relevant. So I grew up in Brisbane or south of Brisbane in the country and I just had, a, an, in my opinion, an ideal young life. You know, basically just ran around the bush. We didn't even wear shoes, you know. Um, and we used to find old ruined houses in, in the bush. I used to go out and see wombats. And it was all just there for me. And it was just a wonderful way of growing up. And although I, I'm pretty convinced I will never live in Australia again, I'm very, very proud or, or very happy to have had the upbringing that I had there because you couldn't have got it anywhere else. And I think my love of the environment has always been with me. Uh, and it, gets it used to get scoffed a lot, actually. <laughs> um, but it's not getting scoffed anymore. Uh, and we do have to be very serious about it. And my, my love of the environment is, is just imbued in me, and it's imbued in my practice now. I was only about eight at the time when I witnessed a gum tree get chopped down to uh, make way in my country school for a new football field. And, um, and everyone else, all the boys were cheering, and I, I was the only one there that, that thought, this doesn't seem quite right to me. 
And I felt it was rather sad. Now, I didn't let on, of course, because you don't let your peer group know that you're a bit of a, you know, bit of a uh, something, a wet. <laughs> but, um, so you don't, you know, you don't let on to other eight-year-old boys about that. But, um, but you know, it, it, it did, it was a magnificent tree and I, I, I thought it was tragic. And I, and I think back on that period now, at that time, I think, well, it says something about me. I don't think you're taught this stuff. I was never taught this stuff. And in, indeed... Until I was at university doing environmental science, uh, was the first time you really talked to people who actually paid that much attention to it. The degree was was very very good, but when I got out of it, um, I couldn't get a job basically. So I, I sat there and I thought, well, what am I going to do? And this is the serendipity of it. I, I just opened up a newspaper and they are advertising for uh, for ambulance officers, and I thought. Ah, I wonder if I could do that. I wasn't even sure I wouldn't faint at the sight of blood. But I thought, you know what, I, I'll have a crack at that. Bless them, <laughs> they let me in. Um, now, when I say ambulance officer, I do mean ambulance officer. There were no paramedics then, right? Not in Brisbane. I'd like to be able to call myself a paramedic, but the last thing I was was a paramedic. Um, and so I was, I was only 20 when I joined them, and that was a bit too young. You were supposed to be 21, but they let me in. And that's when I really, to a large extent, found myself Everything I've done in my life has helped me in some way come forward, right? And um, I think the ambulance was, was fantastic. I loved it. It could be hell on earth if you're stuck in a, in a, in a car or unit um, but with someone you didn't like. That, that, was, that could be hell. But once I got into my second year there, I, got, I was made a senior and I had my own vehicle and I had a partner a guy called Lindsay Johnson, and uh, we just got on. And it was just a great, a phenomenal two years. At the time, they were trying to drive forward the principles of paramedicine. And a bit like I've experienced or I've seen happen with optometry, people don't take new things. The old guard in the ambulance did not want paramedicine. They didn't want it. Uh, it was going to be a lot of hard graft and a lot of learning that they didn't feel, and, and they could rationalise it, they could always rationalise it. Just as people who didn't want to do IP could rationalise it back in, the, in 2000, when, when AS first came out in 2004 or whatever, um, they could rationalise it. But the bottom line is it's because they didn't want to get out of their bubble of, of comfort. And, um, and so at this stage of the game, when I realised the battle that was going to happen and I thought, otherwise, there's nowhere forward. I'd, I'd already climbed effectively to the top. So I started doing night schools then. I, I, I went and did um, physics and chemistry at night school. So I figured, you know, I'll, um, I'll decide what I'm going to do. So I did physics and chemistry at night school while I was in the ambulance. And then I thought, well, wh- all right, what, <laughs> what am I going to do? And a mate of mine, a really good mate, was an industrial chemist. And he says, well, Pete... Uh, I, I quite like my job. Um, I, I, I quite like being an industrial chemist. Why don't you do that? I said, oh, okay, fine, I'll do that. <laughs> so I, I went to QIT, Queensland Institute of Technology, it's now QUT, and I enrolled in industrial chemistry. Now, th- this, is, this is my convoluted route into optometry, and seriously, this is true. I spent two weeks in chemistry and realised I was not a chemist. And I went to the faculty next door and asked them to let me in. 
and they did. And that was optometry. And that's how I got to be an optometrist. And does that make me a worse optometrist? Because I'd never even heard of it before, really. I, I think this, the thing for young optoms now is you can make your own future. And you can take optometry and you can take it down different avenues now. You've just got to work hard at it. And when I was in optometry in Brisbane, Australia, it, we couldn't dilate. We couldn't use cycloplegia. Uh, we, um, we were truly refractionists, if you will, just like we were in Britain. And <clears throat> look at us now. And it's only because certain people have pushed the envelope despite other people perhaps not wanting it because it took them out of their, their comfort zone. Um, and, and I'm not sure I know this as a fact, but I, I have heard that there was, there was a high retirement rate of optometrists in Scotland when they brought in the new rules. And, I, and I'm sure big change will make some people think, well, I've had enough, but it's the only way forward. And I've absolutely loved it. So that's my little story of how I got into optometry. Um, I'm not sure that actually was the right question. What was the question you asked? <laughs> I, th I think this is part B of the question that we might be coming to now. Um, so it, it's really, how, how did you then end up in the UK? Well, um, I was happy to leave Australia. Queensland in, in the 80s, especially if you're a bit environmentally, was not a particularly great place to be. And the Aboriginals in Australia have, have had and have the most horrific treatment and I'd, I'd fundamentally had enough and I, I wanted to work in Britain because I was a bit of a goth back then and it's so much easier being a goth when you're in Britain when it's raining than when you're being a goth in, in Brisbane, Australia when it's really sunny and the coats are really hot. So I thought I'll blow this, I'll, um, I'll go to England, uh, you know life in a northern town and all that was out on the radio at the time uh, and I thought yeah I've got to be a part of this doer do a place. So um, and like all Australians, you sort of think, I'll drift over there, I'll convert my qualification at what was then the London Refraction Hospital and, uh, and work for a year and then, um, you know, tool back probably. Um, but again, opportunities came along. I worked for a while for a company and uh, the company was quietly getting on with the job of going bust. And suddenly they said, look, we're going to sell up. And at that point, I had two options. I could either become an employed optometrist for somebody else or I could buy the practice. And so I talked to my then wife. I had married someone by then um, and said, look, you know, what about it? And we thought, yeah, blow it. It was the only way I think you can actually drive a future, a personalised future for yourself. Otherwise, you are just someone else's tool, if you will. I say that in the nicest possible way, but, um, you know, you are, you are doing someone else's plan. And if you want to build your own plan, you've got to, to some extent, have some level of autonomy. So I did that, but that was in the... So I bought that in 1993, and it was an absolutely classic 80s-esque practice. You know, you had to use your right leg to pump the chair up, and uh, you could spin it around and cut people's hair at the same time. And it was basically one of those practices. So, but it was all up from there because there was no way it could go down, basically. But once I'd done that, you know, you, you are then somewhat stuck in England. Uh, 
I was just offered a job, incidentally, in Northumberland. I just thought, oh, blow it, I'll, I'll, I'll stay there for a while uh, after I left England. Uh, I left London, I should say, sorry. So I had this little practice and I worked at it and there, were only, there was only me and two other people uh, and we built it and built it and built it. And then suddenly, again, opportunity started coming in. Now, at that stage, I call them my dark years. Because what I was trying to do then was learn how to be a business person. Um, and optometry very much took a back step, actually. And I look back on those days with some level of um, regret. Although, you know, you've got to learn how to be a businessman. You've got to understand profit and loss. You've got to understand balance sheets. If you're going to talk to accountants, you have to understand those things. So I taught myself all that stuff. Um, and then an opportunity came when the landlord wanted to sell uh, the units off and I thought well blow this I'll, I'll buy one and then a corner unit came up and thought well blow it you know let's do that so I bought this corner unit and and that just skyrocketed the practice uh, and then I bought another floor which nearly broke me I nearly went out of business then um, really overshot the mark on that one <laughs> but it, it all worked out in the end uh, I remember someone saying, oh, you're going to go out of business. Uh, and I said, I don't, know, I don't need anyone's help making me go out of business. I can do it all by myself. Um, and uh, I nearly did, seriously. Anyway, um, and so opportunities came and I suddenly owned the building and I could work harder and develop it. Uh, and that's how I ended up staying in Britain because once you've got a practice, um, you can't go anywhere else really, you know. And, and so although I'd visit Australia relatively often, but it would only be for three or four weeks because, you know, I was a one-man band and I couldn't afford to be out of the practice for very long. So that was the dark time. And then basically I had my serendipity and, uh, or had my epiphany, I should say. Um, and the one thing I can say for me is at least I did back then go to conferences. Because back then, of course, they were the days you didn't even have to have CT or CPD. You could exit your profession no better informed than when you entered it. But at least I did go to, to meetings and I went to uh, the BCLA and there was a workshop there on therapeutics by Michael Doughty. And I sat in that lecture and uh, I thought, my God, I actually don't understand a half of what this man is saying. Um, and I could have easily come back to Northumberland and thought, yeah, okay, I got, a, well, I didn't get a point for it actually, but anyway, <laughs> I could come back and, and I could forget that, but I didn't. It was actually the kick, the real kick I needed to think, you know what, I'm not prepared to work this way in optometry anymore. I don't, and this is years before IP or AS or SP, but I just thought, no, this, this is not going to work for me. I'm not happy with the way I'm doing this. And I started changing the practice. Um, you know, we put in fee-based systems and, and, and all the rest of it for contact lenses. Uh, and I started educating myself. So the first thing I did before anything else, I did a master's degree in therapeutics at Bradford. And that was really, really good. That was in 2000 or 2001. And, um, and I learned so much from that. That was a really, really good degree to have. And my dissertation went down really well. Uh, and, and okay, this was ages before AS. 
Um, and so I couldn't prescribe from that or anything else, not legally, but I could certainly inform GPs better. I could interact with my patients so much better. I could prescribe drugs via GPs by saying, I've seen this person, would you mind prescribing this? And, and doing this long convoluted route, it gave me the chance to get really good rapport with GPs. They trusted me. They, you know, I started off on easy drugs. And um, so although I couldn't prescribe, I did prescribe for, for many years before AS came along. Uh, and that, that was the start of it all, you know. And I think sometimes somewhere every young person has to say, am I prepared to keep working this way? And some people might be, and that's fine. But if you're not, don't think you're trapped. You know, you can do what you need to do. I had a young lady join me. Um, she got in touch with me because she was self-funding IP. This is some years ago. And um, she wanted to talk to me about how valuable it is and is there any valid use to it? Because she worked in an environment where her bosses didn't see the point they didn't give her any support. And even her colleagues were all saying, what, what the heck are you doing this? You know, you don't come out on Saturday nights with us anymore. Uh, you're, you're too busy studying. Um, and so I appreciate her so much, I gave her a job. And she did her IP via my practice. And, and it was great. And sadly for me, she went and moved to London. Um, but, you know, it, it just goes to show that your peer pressures, the people that around you dictate what you do. And I think this comes on to that last question about how do you engender a, a good environment for workforces? It, it's got to be there in place. And she did all that and she was doing it all by herself and she was lost. She was absolutely lost because she was not getting any support from anyone else. So anyway, um, back to me again. Um, I, I went off, I was, I was at a surgical uh, conference where they were, <laughs> they were teaching us how to do corneal transplants, you know, on, on um, uh, cattle eyes. And, um, and it proved one thing to me, I'm no surgeon, right? <laughs> I mean, it was, dear Lord, um, it was pathetic. But anyway, but while I was down there, I met this extremely eccentric chap called Deacon Hull, who said to me at the time, he says, you know what, you lads, you, you should come along. We're, we're starting this thing called Additional Supply. And I hadn't even finished my dissertation yet on my master's, but I thought, hmm, uh, this sounds interesting. I want a piece of this. And again, there was no suggestion ever that this was going to actually come out, right? You know, this was all so new. Uh, but I thought, no, nah, it sounds interesting. I want to be a part of it. So I just hooked onto that. And so while I was finishing my... Um, my master's degree, I was, I was already starting the additional supply supplementary prescribing. There was no IP um, down at the um, Institute of Optometry. That's where it started, I think, as I recall. Uh, and it was, you know, it was hard yakka. At, at the time, I, I ran a motto that I developed from Australia. I said, you know, bite off more than you can chew and then chew like hell. And, and that's basically been my motto through life. So we just doubled their stuff up. And it was really, really exciting. And I remember we were down there and they said, oh, incidentally, we can do an exam for you today if you want to. Uh, and so it was absolutely bolted onto us. And I thought, oh, we'll blow it. We're here now. We might as well have a crack. You know, we can only fail. So we did, I did my first OSCEs, my first practical, um, and, uh, and did some exams. 
Uh, and, and at the time we were being examined, apparently the examiners were being examined. It was that new. So, you know, I'm proud to say that, or to think that I do bite the bullet, I do take things on. There doesn't have to be a full-on proof that it's going to come to any level of paying fruition. Back then, you used to get a lot of conventional wisdoms thrown at you. And one of the conventional wisdoms back then was, you'll never get paid for it. It's no point. Why do it? Uh, no, no care trust is going to pay us. It's completely wasted time. And you used to get this a lot. And you think, well, actually, all education is good. And whether it came to fruition or not, I was going to be a, a much better optometrist for it. And, uh, and so I, I kept on going with it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it was hard, hard graft, but, you know, we got through it. And, um, and then, you know, suddenly, suddenly IP came on. And I, I'm not normally one to go to graduations or anything like that, but I thought, hmm, I had to work fast on this uh, because suddenly the exam was in November 2009 and I had to do module three at Caledonia University and get it because I thought, if there's one thing that'd be really neat to be to be able to say you're the first IP, <laughs> you know, being able to say you're the second isn't quite the same. So I, I thought, yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do this, and we did. So, you know, we got through, sat the exam in Glasgow, and suddenly I was IP, and uh, I, I thought that it was just great. And then the learning started even further, um, and. That's how I got to where I am. The, the, the doctorate thing, I think, was more just affectation, to be honest, mate. <laughs> I thought, I've done everything else. Uh, I thought, I, I was now at that stage where I'm concentrating more on, on the practice and my colleagues. So I thought, I, I don't really want to get any more qualifications myself now. But I did think, I thought, well, I could finish as a doctor. It might be quite nice. So... So that's why I, I did the doctorate at Aston. And, and again, I, I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. I always say to people, you know, they'd see me working on a, on a Saturday and Sunday uh, at my table in my kitchen typing away. I said, look, if you call it a hobby, it's great. <laughs> you know, if you call it work, it's just a grim five years, you know. But if you call it a hobby, it's absolutely fantastic. And, and, and I think with that doctorate, it's great because you, you, I picked what I wanted to do. I think some PhDs, you, you, you plumb the depths of something really intensely, but it's quite a narrow band. I was able to pick something that was actually clinical. So it actually did have impact on my work as well. And, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I got that finally in 2017. Uh, and so that's my educational standards finished. Believe me, I'm not going any further. There'd be divorce on the table if I took this any further. Um, but... The work doesn't stop. You started talking about your workplace and we just wanted to know, well, what's important to you in the workplace? How do you create that positive, productive place to work? My whole growth of my business has been the growth of that. The opportunities that you latch onto aren't always necessarily the fact that a, um, a unit comes for sale and you bought it. It can be recognising people. And I am extremely proud that my newest colleague 
is eight years, has been with me eight years. Andrew, my other, one of my other IP optoms, um, he's, well, actually, I'll tell you his story because this is really part of it. He came to me in 96 as a trainee DO. He qualified as a DO, an excellent DO, and his enthusiasm was so marked that we put him through the CLO course. He did the CLO course and then our Connet Lens business just skyrocketed because an optom could be sitting in their little room and they're thinking, oh, do I mention Connet Lens? It's going to take up a lot of time. It's going to do... Suddenly he could say, look, Andrew, you know, he was doing his day job being a DO and if we said, look, do you want to try Connet Lenses? In they went with Andrew. We built an extra room. It was a very small room, but we built him an extra room uh, and, uh, and it just took off. And then along comes that Bradford, um, I'm going to call it a conversion course, but it's, not a, it's, it's got a better name than that uh, because it really is a degree, right? And he, we put him through that and it was hard yakka. It was hard yakka for him and it was hard yakka for us because he was out of the practice all week um, before you go there, you have to do a year's worth of other stuff first, and then you go and spend a year at Bradford Uni, uh, and, um, but then he became an optometrist. And, you know, the long game, we play the, I, I definitely feel we play the long game. You know, you've got to. I, I never use locum optometrists. Um, you know, I don't feel they fit our, there's some great locum optoms, right? You know, and like there's great everything, but we want continuity of care and, and something I've been building for all along is to, to have a system where patients know they're going to see someone who's been there for a long time. And Andrew is a classic example of that. You know, I've worked with him. He's, he's now into his 27th year with me. And not many practices can say, they've, unless they're an owner, can say that, I don't believe. And so then he went through IP. We put him through IP. He's now got a glaucoma certificate, uh, which we put him through. And, um, and it's just the story. So he's, he's so imbued in it. And, and so are all of my other colleagues. He's one of my best examples, I think. I'm very proud of creating that boy. Um, and, uh, but Debbie, Debbie, our other IP optom, she came to us in, in, as a pre-reg in 2000. And, 11 say and she's never left and so so we have three full-time optom uh, three full-time ip optoms which means we can now offer a full service <clears throat> so patients know that if they have a any problem they do not go to a doctor they do not go to an eye hospital they come to us and if i'm off andrew and debbie are in or whatever so we have full cover and the same goes for all my colleagues I, i'm saying you know, you're asking me how I fulfill... You see, I don't think any of us are taught how to do HR. I mean, I did Investors in People ages ago, and certainly that gives you a plaque you can stick on the wall. Um, but I think there's a lot of people out there who potentially can tick all boxes and say, we've done this, this, and this. But the real strength is, is believing in it, is absolutely believing in it and believing in your people. And for instance, I don't call any of my, all of my colleagues are my colleagues. There's not one of them is a staff member or an employee. And I know that sounds petty, but 
they feel part of a team and again the, the longevity of all of my colleagues is to me says it all as many mistakes as i make and we all make mistakes and i stress people the very way i work stresses people because you cannot plan emergencies we're always adapting to the state of play at the time um you know the more popular you become and especially after covid people are coming to us now for general health things i mean not 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 they don't want warts taken off their toes or anything i mean nothing like that but you know if they've got a general health issue they'll be they'll be coming to us and so the the stress levels on us is is really quite high um and we have to keep adapting to the environment in which we're working you know you can't say this is the plan of how it's going to work and we've had more permutations on how to work the clinic because you you you'll never know when an, an emergency is going to walk in the door um but with with four full-time optoms uh and two pre-regs we usually can manipulate it these days that that we we can fit people in and we never effectively never turn patients away and they're triaged very very well by my colleagues uh that their, their triage sheets are, are just awesome and um and they can really do a fantastic job so it's it's how you invest in people uh, and and when you see someone that's valuable you keep them you know um andrew i kept debbie i kept and all my other colleagues are kept we have one young lady called laura who came to us as a um as a work experience girl then she came on as a saturday girl she went off and did a degree in design and so i created a job for her because i did not want to lose her and she is now our social media design all the all the stuff we do in the practice she designs it and we have created that role and she is an extremely valuable member of the team but i could have so easily lost her because i said well there's no role for you here and and andrea my our manager she comes from a background she came to me for a year she said look i'll give you a year peter uh and then after that i'm moving to york and that was 18 years ago <laughs> and uh and she allowed me to take the practice to another level because at that stage i was i was taking a second floor because we wanted to expand and it was risky and um she said i'll come for a year uh and see how just help you through that bit because it gets to a point where your practice is so big optometrists independent optometrists have to do everything they have to be an optom they have to be a manager they have to be hr they have to do all those things together and and it's just impossible and i i thought well i have to take a i have to either remain an optometrist and this is before i was even as uh so i have to either be an optometrist or be a manager i cannot be both now in came andrea who came to me for a year and then i i basically nailed the feet to the floor and she couldn't get away and so now she's actually a partner yeah. doing a course on hr i think gives you a lot of theory but it's how you interact with your colleagues and they are colleagues they're not staff they're actually colleagues and we have lots of little mantras uh 
in our practice that, that help us take it forward. And we all, and we all believe in it, uh, including the environmental stuff, you know, the, the recycling of everything. Everybody in my practice believes in it. And because they believe in it, they are part of the team. Um, and I was never taught in it. And I don't think doing courses on HR can necessarily, I'm sure they're really good, but they can't necessarily make you a human being that interacts with people. I think that's, that's the most important bit. And I do consider them all my friends. And, and I say to them flat that I will not let them down. Uh, and if I, I could suddenly sell that business out from under them and go, and I simply, they know that I wouldn't do it. And you've got to have this relationship with your colleagues and then all of your patients come along. They all know that I'm an environmental um, nincompoop. (laughs) (laughs) They all know, uh, you know, um, they know what I do, they know, and, and I know them, and I know what they do, and I know their lives, and that's an interaction that you cannot do in 20 minutes, and it's knowing patients come back year after year after year because they actually trust you. And, you know, I have this, this thing. I said loyalty comes from trust. Trust comes from understanding. Understanding comes from education, and education takes time. And I always say we're in for the long haul. We're not in for the short-term sting. And all my colleagues, all these things that I write, it's imbued in our very culture, and everybody knows it. And we will not let patients down, and they all know I will not let them down. Uh, and, and that is really, really crucial. Because I think you do hear about places that as soon as the, the, the wheels fall off, people aren't pulling together, people are blaming. And uh, the buck stops with me. And that's a fact. And they know it. And they know that I will never, ever let any of them down. Uh, and, you know, you don't get taught that, I don't think. You know, why you can do all these fancy courses and all this HR, but the bottom line is it's trust. And if your colleagues trust you because you deserve to be trusted, and if you trust all of them because they deserve to be trusted, then uh, the patient journey is just easy and everything swings along quite nicely. So, Peter, you, you touched on there about some of the sustainability initiatives in your practice. So, can you tell us a bit about that? Um, yeah, how are you making the practice more sustainable? Um, and particularly, um, one of the things we want to ask you is, is, is sustainability a cost we need to factor into practice costs? Or is it possible to save money whilst being sustainable? Right. Nice question. <laughs> um, it, 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 it should be factored in, in such a profound way. Um, what I say to people about, about doing all this stuff is just start. Start easy. There are so many things you can do very, very easily. If you want to get really complicated about this, you've got three levels. Economic models have historically evolved out of seismic changes in our society. So the original classic um, comes out of the Industrial Revolution. That's, that changed the model of economy. And it was basically 
it was the classical model just said, let it run. It was really Darwinian. You just, you just let things run. And if something went extinct, it went extinct. And then we get um, uh, Keynesian economics as a result of the Great Depression. Uh, and suddenly this, this guy decided that we better have some controls put in. Well, the point I'm making with that is every great model of economics comes out of some seismic change in our society. And there is now evolving, or has been evolving for some time, environmental economics and also ecological economics, which are two different schools. And they're saying that the cost within a business is far greater than the simple cost that we do. And, and that's a huge picture where being in a bigger group makes a lot of difference to this um, because you cannot trace everything you do. So anyway, um, the point is that at a, at a surface level, you can still do a lot. You know, recycling contact lenses, recycling glasses. The company we use uh, is based in Darwin. In, in um, I think that's in Lancashire, I don't know, somewhere or other. Uh, and uh, thank you very much. Um, and, uh, and they'll recycle loads and loads of things, minims, everything. So, you know, that's a huge thing because microplastics that get into the, into the ecosystems are, are, are terrible. And it, then you can do all your normal recycling uh, and, and so on within the practice. We, we don't have any packaging. You know, we, we had paper bags years and years and years before, you know, they were, le they were forced upon people. Um, and there's so many little things you can do uh, where, a, where a corporate member of Northumberland Wildlife Trust, uh, so we, we help there and we have visitors come in about environment. The, we had a whole, this was just before COVID actually, uh, we had an entire um, group of, of brownies come in because they'd heard that we were recycling things. And I was so amazed by these young people. It was, it was awesome. Their commitment to it and their mission statements. If a politician had a mission statement like those brownies, we'd be in a much better place. It was absolutely remarkable. And I was, I was even given a badge. I was given, I, I wear with pride on my Sea Shepherd cycling jersey, um, future girl. Oh, I am a future girl. Their commitment, I always thought brownies just did things like, you know, knit or something, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they weren't like the cubs. The cubs went off and, and burnt things and, and, and brownies always did much nicer things. Well, no, these people are serious. I mean, this is serious stuff. And their commitment to the environment is just absolutely awesome. Uh, and, and because of this, our whole practice is imbued with this idea of it. And patients, I think it reflects the patients that, that are attracted to our practice. They're intelligent people. They come and they, they know what we do. They know that I cycle everywhere. And it's, it's just absolutely imbued in our culture. Um, the big thing, though, is taking forward the economics of it. I don't, for instance, have a modern slavery policy because I know that it would be a lie because I can't trace back everything that I purchase right through to know that there's not some fashion thing 
somewhere in Bangladesh. But that's the next step. But, you know, that, that's the point. If you hit people hard with all of that stuff and about environmental economics, which means the balance sheet becomes a totally different animal. If Exxon have an oil spill and they pollute it, that's part of their cost. That's not a public cost, that's their cost. And if you start factoring in these costs into your profit and loss, it does change the economics. And, and, and so if every company had to pay every cost, and if you just do this on Wikipedia, the example is, it's a, to give a really simple example, I say, just say you live on a flat on the top floor and you have a, 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 a water leak, it's not just your house, you have to, your flat you have to fix. You have to flip, fit, fix the flat below. So the costs are different. And this is, this is serious. So seismic changes in our, econ- in our environments change our economics. And in a few more years' time, environmental economics um, will be the mainstay, I believe. Right? Uh, and, and it's just always been interesting to me that it takes an absolute kick in the face to make people change models. So the very fact that, that Keynesian economics came out of the Great Depression, where they suddenly decided that you need to have um, government interventions to stabilise things, that was the big change over classical. Now we're saying, you know, the environment has to be taken into account when we're doing the economics. You can't have companies just saying, this is a bottom line. We're stripping out all these trees in, in the Amazon and it's only costing us this much so we can sell the furniture for this much. When actually the cultural implications, the environmental implications are so profound. The cost for us all is way higher. And, and people need to think about it. You know, when they think about simple economics, it's not quite like that. But anyway, but sorry, it's, it's, if you hit people with all that stuff straight up, you gotta say, but you, people can give up. And we mustn't give up. We must look at our own little environments and say, you know, I can help here. I can do things. I can recycle things. I can push it out there. I can make it a priority. I can, it's, it's so imbued in, in all of our stuff. Patients come to us about it. They know about it. And I had a young lady came to me um, once and she, she was going to change. She wanted to change to monthly contact lenses. And I've, I said to my colleague, well, what, what the heck does she want to do that? It's not, it's not all that, it's not the best option. And the, my colleague said, oh, well, actually, it's, she's been to Indonesia and she's been seeing the plastic pollution there and she wants to do something about it. So she wants to not have dailies. I said, wow, get this young lady in. I need to talk to this woman, <laughs> right? This woman is brilliant, Right. And so she kindly came in. I wrote a, a newsletter about her, uh, and I discuss, And we'd already. This is some years ago. I'd already started recycling contact lenses, so I came in and did a, did a chat to her, showed her what we were doing, um, explained the benefits, health benefits of dailies, and what we're doing, and, and so on. And she stayed on dailies. And and honestly, when she comes in, bless her, she comes in with. You know, with just bags of lenses, <laughs> uh, blister packs, the whole lot, and and I know, and J and J did the same, and I applaud them for that. They were paying via this TerraCycle company in Darwin, um, but they were doing it themselves. They were paying, and I don't see why they should have to pay. I think we should pay, 
and I'm happy to pay uh, because it's part of what we do to help patients. And actually, I'm really proud that I, on our Northumberland Wildlife Trust, we're a corporate member of this group because I decided once, I said, look, I'm a member of Greenpeace. I'm a member of Sea Shepherd. I'm, uh, you might want to edit this out, I am XR. Um, and, uh, and I thought, you know, I don't do anything local. And uh, North, I cycle through the Northumberland Wildlife Trust area on the way to work every day. So I thought, you know, I should really take a part in that. And, and, and I did. And my quote is still on their, uh, on their website, um, which I gave, which I will read to you, actually. I will read part of it anyway. Sometimes business benefits are not immediately quantifiable. However, we believe loyalty comes from trust. My patient support and therefore my business success reflects their commitment to a broader principled business model. So please everyone, by doing your little bit, we will help ensure future generations enjoy the beauty and diversity of natural Northumberland. Uh, and that's on their website. And I'm really chuffed to that. It's been on there for some time. Um, but it is important. And I think I pay them so much a year. Uh, you could say there's no business benefit to that, but there actually is. There's an unquantifiable business benefit to that. And, and I think the more we show it now, um, the better. So there we are. <laughs> Peter, I, th I think that's a, a really nice place to, to wrap things up. Thank you for giving up so much of your, your time, especially on your birthday, and, and for sharing your wisdom and thoughts with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. I hope I didn't blather too long. <laughs>